In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Welcome to part two of our interview with Julia and Jeremiah from the podcast Sex Evangelicals. If you haven't listened to part one, it would probably be helpful to go back and give that a listen before continuing with this episode. As a small refresher, on our last episode, we spoke with Julia and Jeremiah a bit about their podcast, some of the impacts of church culture on understandings of sexuality that they've observed in their work, as well as some new ways to frame sexuality that move away from behavior-based understandings. We're so grateful to Julia and Jeremiah for the time that they took to share their knowledge and experience with us, as well as helping us with some very practical resources for anyone wanting to learn more or look for counseling in this area. We have all of those listed in our episode notes if you didn't happen to catch them while you're listening. We hope that you enjoy the conclusion of our interview with Julia and Jeremiah. Thanks for listening. How do you think that we got to the place where the conversation is so foundationally about behaviors? Like, where did that come from? Like, I I try to be charitable, which is difficult sometimes for me in evaluating the evangelical church. And I like to think it's not just entirely a control mechanism, but maybe it is. Um, What are your guys' thoughts for, like, how did we get to a place where you get, like, a 25-year-old youth pastor who's saying, you know, don't masturbate, don't have sex before marriage, and then when you get to marriage, it's going to be awesome. Like, how, like, uh, but only particular kinds of sex. Like, how, how did that become the conversation? Um, so I'm trying to think about how long of a route to take here. This is a history lesson. This is, this, this is a history lesson. I, I wrote some notes about Sunday this. school to history. I know you were yeah. excited about this super, question. So. Oh, good. <laughs> you looked at me because you wanted to be charitable. Um, and I was like, I know you want to answer this it. one. At the church so. in Ephesus. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, and, 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 and we can, we can work backwards. So, um, so one of the things that that theology does is ask a question about like what is the role of suffering, and how can uh, how can we as humans kind of work our way through it? And this is a little bit oversimplistic, but when we look at world religions, world religions typically say that well, one of the ways that we can move through that is through bodies. And so there's some some world religions. So so let's take tantric Buddhism, for instance, suggests that our own bodies and the ways that we engage with each other can be conduits uh, to a, a freedom from suffering uh, through the ways that we uh, engage with ourselves um, in these really intimate, really intense uh, types of ways. And these types of religions, so so. Um, so Tantra does this uh, well. Uh, the Kama Sutra, which is uh, kind of rooted in Hinduism, does this well. If you've been to a hammam before, that's rooted in in, uh, in Muslim faith traditions. That, that's kind of a version of this. The whole idea that there's an easier access to pleasure uh, 
um, because if our bodies are the ways to uh, encourage uh, freedom from suffering, one of the ways to do that is to feel good and to help other people around you feel good. Christianity and evangelical Christianity takes a different approach mm. through the through through the realm of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus becomes so, so not just the body of someone else, but the body of the Son of God uh, becomes the the conduit from suffering. Well, interpretations over time have opened the door to to moralism. It's very easy to make the move, and you caused uh, Jesus to uh, to. Uh, die on the cross. It's because of your sins, you sinner, you harlot, to use the language. <laughs> Do you like the <laughs> so, so we can talk more in depth about kind of how that happens over church history. What's interesting is that in the 20th century, a group of American conservatives begin to ask the question, what if Jesus, who already serves as a conduit from suffering through his death on the cross, becomes your significant other? Mm-hmm. Mm. And this is ultimately the question that fuels purity culture in, yeah. in uh, mm. starting in the 80s. Jesus is the first boyfriend. Right. The right. ultimate boyfriend. Uh, the ultimate, obviously. Mm. Not the first, last, and all, all in between. So, so, the, so the questions about what does pure mean, quote, mm-hmm. and the more significant question, who gets to define what yeah. pure means? Mm-hmm. That takes on a whole new level of intensity, especially as purity culture is explicitly marketed to teenagers who are already more susceptible mm. to groupthink and peer pressure. The other thing that, that's important to keep in mind, evangelical Christians are disturbingly good at lobbying. Mm. Oh. Mm-hmm. You're, you're watching, you're watching like, the Phyllis Schlafly documentary. The, yeah, I'm, I'm really in a internet and, deep dive of the 1970s. And their, uh. and their lobbying is a significant reason for the Title V abstinence only until marriage bill yeah. uh, passed mm. in 1996, which mm. funds... Uh, the majority of American sex education uh, for a good majority of Gen Xers and the totality of millennials, yep. at least in, mm. at least in the U.S. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who uh, don't know what that is, um, you know, even if you miss the bullshit of purity rings and pledges, uh, chances are, if you're under the age of 45 and went to a public school, you were taught that abstinence and monogamy are the expected standards for sexual relationships. You were taught some variation of just say no uh, without having any process for what or how to say yes to. And you were taught to attain self-sufficiency before engaging in in sexual activity. Um, So it's really, really remarkable. It's really important, I should say, to understand not just the church history elements of this, but the ways that in the 70s and 80s, evangelical Christians began to use this platform as a way to kind of wedge themselves into the Republican Party and and create, from my perspective, and Julia, from your perspective too, I think, uh, some really damaging messages about sexuality and bodies. Yeah. And Allison, I'm thinking about what you've mentioned a couple times about the, the challenges of conceptualizing some of our experiences. And I really appreciate what you said a couple times when you referenced, okay, when I can be charitable, I I have this understanding. And I agree with you. One, sometimes it is really hard to be charitable. <laughs> and two, I think that my parents and many adults in my life were well-meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on perhaps more mm-hmm. individual levels, folks who grew up in those systems did have some positive intent or yeah. they didn't have any other information that suggested 
otherwise. However, broadly on a systemic level, I also agree with you that it that the inaction of it was about control mm-hmm. in so many different right. facets, even if individually yeah. that wasn't uh the harm folks intended, the systemic harm around control uh has and continues to to work its damage. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, that that's great. And it's one of the tensions that I've kind of struggled with as I've, I mean, I guess I could say deconstructed. I mean, in some ways I don't really like the term, but I, I don't have a different one at this mm-hmm. moment. Um, Me too. <laughs> thank you. Because um, it's it's been really difficult in relationship with with my parents to, to go, I see so many issues systemically, and yet I know that your individual intentions were not they were not meant to be harmful. They were not meant like your, your intentions for, for these, you know, doctrines that I was handed or in particularly when conversations around sexuality, like what, what you, what you gave to me was well-intended. And so it's, it's, I think it's important. Thank you, Julia, for, for being able to kind of delineate the two things that at an individual level, you can see that people aren't necessarily trying to perpetuate harm. But when you look at it, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think when you look at it from a larger perspective, you can't deny that it has though. Right, right. of course you can't. And Jeremiah, that's interesting that you brought up um, the issue of suffering because mm. I also think that uh, impacts the individual and couple or group relationship around sexuality. Ken, at the, uh, towards the beginning of our conversation, you had asked around like the manifestations mm-hmm. around yeah. some of the trauma. And one of the double binds is that many Christian communities purport that suffering is the greatest connection to Jesus right. because Jesus suffered. Right. Uh, and then you also read um, Christian literature that suggests um, the book, um, the book cover that I sent you in the picture was intended for pleasure. I'm pretty sure that was published in the 80s. Um, and it was at the time in Christian communities, pretty revolutionary mm-hmm. that, wow, sex could feel good. And guess what, <laughs> men, your wives, they might have an orgasm. How revolutionary. Some- <laughs> yeah. Revolutionary, revolutionary. Um, But then it creates this double bind that like, wait a second, I've never been able to experience pleasure in my body because my body was always told to me was bad, evil, wrong, dangerous. But now I'm married and I'm supposed to feel pleasure. But also, aren't I supposed to be suffering because that's what Jesus did and that's how I'm supposed to connect with Jesus. So it's this really difficult place for individuals to be in. And then if you're working with a couple, you're navigating that together. Yeah, that's that's so hard. Yeah, like that um, fragmentation is the word that comes to mind when you're talking about this concept, because I feel like my evangelical past was so fragmenting, right? Like I was invited to be in pieces, like I was told to be in pieces right. and then, right. then the work then then it becomes this big work of trying to and I, bring those pieces back i'm gonna hold, hold your thing yeah keep, i want you to keep going but yeah. i'm gonna interject just on your and you were a good evangelical oh yeah i was great evangelical. like you were <laughs> youth i was a youth leader, pastor youth leader youth pastor camp counselor yeah you my cred was did huge. you get fired from a church too i did i did not i know i, I chose, would never get you'd never get yeah. fired. he was too good to be fired yeah wow. i was i i i was oh that's a whole other podcast yeah but, anyway but, i just uh, want to put that in there as you say yeah as you keep going with you yeah but i yeah Thank you. Um, but I, I, there was sort of that invitation to this fragmented 
um, way of being, right? And, and for for me, um, it's been a lot of work to try and choose which pieces I want and kind of put mm-hmm. myself back together how I want to get put back together after going through a system that deliberately kind of put me in two parts uh, in regards yes. to my sexuality as well as other uh, parts. Yes. And, but right. I just wondered, like, what about, like, Jeremiah, you touched on this in one of the podcasts I had heard you talked about your grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a recent right? episode. Yeah. And, and that really resonated with me. And when we talk about yeah. this kind of more fragmented state, like I have, I have a lot of grief around it. Yeah. You know, that there were all these pieces of me that weren't welcome to be put back together that I had to do that work on my own. Like what, yeah. what, do you, what, oh. what do you do with that sexual, that, that grief around the lack of sexual freedom that you had? Oh, we you spent a th- you spend thousands and thousands <laughs> oh. and thousands of dollars in therapy, yeah. which I have done. I've done that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Jeremiah, while you're thinking and while we're both thinking yeah. on the point of breaking though, mm-hmm. something at least in my youth group and Jeremiah, I'll be curious if you experience this because I think it's going to be more of like a Baptist evangelical, not church of Christ thing. There was a lot of language like where I remember, and this is like both hilarious and heartbreaking, like being 15 and like having my eyes closed with like my friends in a circle and there's music and it'd be like, God, please just break me. Just like break me into pieces, break me into pieces. And like, that was like weird language that got used. And like, I look back on it and I'm like, weird. Like, that's really sadistic. It is sadistic. Breaking into pieces was, from my experience, like a literal thing, and you would pray for God to break right. you. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, did you get that, Jeremiah? Probably not. We had a song, so 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 we were in in. I feel like there's a whole other podcast about the Church of Christ. Um, we we had a song, "Break My Heart, Dear Lord." Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, and we were singing it really, really passionately with gusto, and yeah, that that was well, the similar think- song in evangelical uh, tradition. Was and I don't know if this verse was added because I remember one of the leaders in one of the churches that we were I'm looking at Amanda. I didn't sing it. Uh, there's a song that was just repeats like holiness, holiness, holiness. is what yes. I want. Oh. But then there's one this of the verse that you get to, which brokenness, brokenness is what I long for. Which right. good, good theologians, even good evangelical mm. theologians, would point out you're, you're not supposed to long for brokenness. Yeah. That's not, <laughs> like that doesn't. But what I did, but that I did. was I there. Yeah. yeah, but the whole, just the whole concept of the replacement of you with Christ. Right. Right. That you become absent. (laughs) That you you become absent and people see Jesus in you. When they look at you, that's what they see. Like it's it's this this very disembodying, it's a completely disembodying philosophy. It's like when you look at me, see somebody else. And then when I do things, I'm doing it because someone else is doing it. Like it's this very disembodied way of Ken, as you're saying this, because we shared some church experience in those Mm -hmm. years. So when you were a young youth leader and I was a youth leader and then I became a youth pastor mm-hmm. and you were a youth leader and then mm-hmm. you went off to a different church and became mm-hmm. a youth pastor. So we're both youth pastors, but we're friends. Like we're not yeah. like, I, I, we're had not a competitors. I had a guitar <laughs> and a Volkswagen We're band. not competitors. Ooh. But I, I see this question that you have that you asked in, in you voice in, in some way, yeah. uh, how do I grieve the years mm-hmm. of sexual alignment that I've missed out yeah. on? Mm-hmm. And I think I was there during those years. And for mm-hmm. me, like I, I'm really feeling it right now thinking like, Oh my goodness, yeah. those years, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, yeah. I had no idea that you were experiencing this, right? Mm. And that is, I'm not blaming myself, mm. though I'm culpable as part of it, but just the culture that we were both in that didn't allow this, I just think, oh my goodness, but, what yeah. what have we done? And how do you 
how do you, you know, recover the years the locusts have eaten? And you, you know, and, and, and to a degree, it. you can't. Like, mm-hmm. and, and it is a product of this disembodiment and this fractured state, right? Um, is that you can be in these, you can be operating in these two ways at one time, right? Be, yeah. Being a dedicated evangelical youth pastor while also having a pretty strong awareness you're a closeted gay man. And they can yeah. just be, in, they can be in pieces and you can go through your days yeah. with that tension. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple things come to mind to answer the question about grief. Like the hours following recording days are often really, really intense for us. Mm. Um, for 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 one of us, the episode that you're referring to most most recently, our interview with Doug Brown Harvey. Uh, that was a really really hard interview mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting to be uh, asked questions mm-hmm. about my own experience, although like part of the work, uh, part of the healing process is stepping into those spaces. Mm-hmm. And like, I was done for the rest of the night. And and we've had plenty of, of other interviews where we're talking more about like the experiences of, of women in the evangelical church. And Julia, like you experienced that, that sense of grief and, and just the heaviness for, for, for the rest of the night, if not longer than that. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that grief is something that's inherent in doing in doing sex therapy and in being able to talk about these these really really these sad things, these missed opportunities, these lessons where you think, "Oh, I should have known better." And it's really about first of all, how do you be kind to yourself uh during this process? Second, how do you be kind to you know, other people, much much like the two of you, uh, just just shared um, a, a couple of minutes ago. Um, yeah, it's 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 really really hard, heavy work at times. So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the whole idea also about brokenness, like, yeah, brokenness is also like at the at the core of Pauline theology, uh, because uh, Paul is is writing. Um, in a time of, of dualism, where, where dualism yep. is a very important thing in, in Roman culture, the separation uh, between uh, what goes on kind of in your head, kind of your cognitive self, uh, and then your your physical yeah. mind, uh, body, yep. mind, body yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Um, that's that's very rooted in in, in Pauline theology. Uh, and, and, and it's it's really hard to separate yourself uh, from that when you're doing um when you're doing exegetical work on any of the epistles, um, because that's yeah, it's just yeah. th- there mm-hmm. and everything. It's, I, it's everywhere. I really appreciate you mentioning things like that because for our podcast and people who listen to us, some of them and uh, kind of the theological piece is so important, right? It's, it's, it's a particular yeah. way of thinking theologically that has brought people to these places and it works out in terms of what is sexuality, what is right. Um, and in, I think it was in the last episode that you just mentioned, you, you talk about some of that or your guest did, I think that, that even now, and you mentioned it in terms of some of the abstinence, uh, education and such, our culture can be impacted larger culture by these kinds of, uh, dichotomies, these, these, these rigid ways of division in terms of our thinking. Um, and I think your guest mentioned that as he, as he was working with some people, like, so say a guy would come in and say, I'm a sex addict, you know, because I look at porn or whatever it is. And, and he'd be yeah. like, wait a minute. And he uses Im- uh, language like sexual images yeah. instead or kind of and helps to unpack some of that. And then he kind of unpacked in some 
in the positive and negative frame, so there's there's good things and bad things about this, that that many people have moved from the idea of like sexuality being sinful, but now mm-hmm. that disorder language or disease language takes over right. so much, so that there's just this like this is such a bad part of myself. Um, I would imagine yeah. that a lot of your work is helping people through those kinds of those kinds of things. One of the things that Doug mentions in the episode is we don't talk much about what sexual health is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about dysfunction. We talk a lot about disorder, but we don't actually talk about health. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the upcoming series that we're talking about is actually uh, expanding on six sexual health principles uh, that uh, he that Doug Brown Harvey talks about: uh, consent, uh, non-exploitation, uh, honesty shared values, uh, the prevention of uh, pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy and uh, sexually transmitted infections, and, mu- and mutual pleasure. And those are the six uh, sexual health principles is what he calls them. Uh, those are the six um, kind of uh, ideas, uh, values, processes that he talks about that will that Julia and I will be mm. talking about in, in upcoming episodes so in much, more detail. Mm. So much more positive. So thanks, yeah. and thanks for being ready to with those six, right? To outline them. No, yeah. and I think yeah. you bring up a really important point there. And and you touched on it earlier where we we know what to say no to and we don't know what to say yes to. Like so we understand what kind of can be framed as unhealthy or if you go back to like rigid moral frameworks like what is sinful versus not sinful. But we don't actually talk about what like sexual flourishing would mean for someone like what actual sexual health is and it it brought to mind um uh years ago uh i read nadia bowles weber's book uh shameless where yeah it seems like the the whole premise of the books is like I got, I got divorced in my forties and do the same rules for dating apply that happened when I was in youth group? Like, am I really not supposed to sleep with the guy before I marry him if I'm dating them again? And she, she talks about like a sexual health and she goes back to some of like the world health organization's definition, which is like a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality, not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. And it's like sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. For sexual health to be attained and maintained, the sexual rights of all persons must be respected, protected, and fulfilled. And I remember going like, it it, it kind of was like a bit of like a put the thing down Mm -hmm. for a moment. Because I was like, I haven't had sexual health ever really framed for me other than you're gonna once you're married it's gonna be good and you guys should talk like that that (laughs) really was about it and so I feel like there there's kind of some baseline things that that are missing from from conversations that we have about sex which I don't think are exclusive to the church but being able to talk about and how you guys frame things and shared values and concern for others and health and I think that those are all things that there needs to be a big shift in how we have conversations around sexuality. And I'm so grateful for, for the work that you guys do. Um, because I think it it was, it was funny. My, my daughter's or my children's school, uh, brought in, uh, now that, that COVID is, you know, better. Um, they had like their sexual health week. And so they put on a, um, like a parent's info night. How with, old are your kids? So uh, 11 and six. There you go. And 
it was it was great because they they were reframing in in how they were talking about sexuality because there was a couple of concerned parents which you get every time I think um but they were saying that they're like your kids you're gonna always be more uncomfortable talking about this than your kids are um and that you're teaching them sexual health like destigmatizing and divorcing it from like a moral thing like actually protects them and it gives them information and they were talking about how like statistically better sex education does not lead to higher <laughs> sexual activity right. it does not and so it's all these kind of mythologies that i remember being told that just actually don't bear out and yeah. so it's even like trying to think about like how we reframe conversations with our children about sex and I think I've said this in, in other conversations. Like I hope to mess my children up in different ways than my parents messed me up. <laughs> like that's kind of like my ultimate goal as a parent. Like no one's getting out of this, like unscathed. It's just, I, I am far from perfect, but I do right. hope that we can have some conversations with, with people now, like that, you know, this generation that is dealing with all of this shit and is having to, you know, put in the time and the emotional effort to deal with the grief, like as you're talking about Ken and Jeremiah, and that hopefully we can have some reframing for mm -hmm. stuff that actually gives people a place to start from. Because I feel like I wasn't given a place to start from. Yeah. Well, just kind of on the reframe note, I had this as a question, but maybe I'll make a comment and then maybe you <laughs> want to comment. Um, just that, um, you know, monogamy is so prized, is so held up. And mm -hmm. I don't think it's safer like I don't think no. I don't think monogamy is not safer, you know, but it's sort of held up as being that's where you'll come into your fullest self and experience the best things. And, and I don't think that's actually the case. It's it's the people that are in the relationship that make it safe or healthy. Absolutely. Right. The people in the relationship and then the community yeah. around the relationship, whether that relationship is two people or or, or groups of people yeah. or whatever arrangement that you have. I completely agree. In the you. way that those people uh, make decisions together, make mm -hmm. agreements together and then keep those agreements mm -hmm. together like that. That's how relational safety gets gets yeah. created because it is a in monogamous context and poly contexts, like whatever. Yeah. Which is such a significant reframing, I think, when we're talking about people from faith backgrounds, that right. it's so hard to move past this idea that, you know, monogamy is best, safest, healthiest, um, regardless, you know, but, and I don't think that it is, which I think is what we're, what we're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. an amazing thing. So now... Ken, Ken, you've actually said the most, you know, controversial thing on the episode. <laughs> like when you think of our, <sighs> think of that upbringing, that evangel, back to the Sunday school class. Yeah. To hear somebody say, monogamy is not necessarily safer. People are like, are you, stop, stop right there. But, you know, even as a pastor for many years, um, because in an evangelical church, you'd get the leadership. It's always, it's always the sexual thing. So even to the point of like... <laughs> so-and-so should be brought before the congregation or these kinds mm, of things that, yeah. that can happen, right? And I was always going like, no, that's not. And why is it always about sex? Why does it always have to be about... Um, but And I would say sometimes to various leaders or even to the church or that everybody, you know, people seem to be interested in this concept of like sexual sin. And I'd say yeah. in this congregation, like evangelical... <laughs> Most of the sexual sin is happening within monogamous relationships. Yeah, that's where right. That's yeah. the kind of pain that be, that can be caused, the kind of power imbalances that mm -hmm. can be there, the kind of yeah. frustration that people can have. Mm -hmm. Why are we as a congregation worried about these other areas, right? When it, it's clearly here, and and can to hear you say this in the way you say it, 
the damage that can be done, not only within those things, but by the assumption that that is the better way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think really interesting. Also, I think too, sort of the, the, the lack of willingness to have conversation is somebody's in a monogamous relationship. It's like, oh, well, you're, you're in the best relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so there's, that n- there's no need to talk anymore. There's less room to there's less room for the for the people who are in relationships to express right, right, be, right. Because if you're going to have other uh, other partners of whatever kind that you want, yeah. um, you have to be able to talk about that, mm-hmm. and and that takes so many uh, relational skills and sexual skills and communication skills that we don't teach very well, not just in sexuality, but even outside mm-hmm. of sexuality, yeah. we don't talk with kids about how to talk mm. and how to communicate. So um, we can learn, we can learn so much from communities that are negotiating um, what uh, the church might call the alternative lifestyle, yeah. quote unquote, yes. or the gay agenda, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, I call it the civil rights agenda, but call it whatever, whatever yeah. you will. And even before that, I would also argue, Ken, to kind of tap onto what you're saying, I would argue that every relationship is an open relationship. Mm. Oh, sure. I will. Yeah, I, I, no. I, I, I so, see where so you're going. Next, yeah. next, next Friday, for instance, I am going to lunch. By the way, I'm going to lunch with Tyna next Friday. <laughs> um, by the way. Because I'm, his wife doesn't want to hang out with us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my next door neighbor is pretty amazing. Yeah. And, um, and we go to lunch you know, once a month, once every six weeks and have like two, three hour conversations yeah, about like awesome. all sorts of stuff. And I feel super revitalized. And when's the next time you're talking with your friend, Grace? Um, you, you know, um, Grace plays a super important role in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that relationship. And I talked to you about that relationship and it's not sure. a sexual relationship, sure. but, um, and if it were, we would talk about it too, but. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think that you talk with your partner about the important, or you can, and I would encourage lives. you to talk with your mm-hmm. partner about the important, um, people in your lives whether or not you're fucking them if you are yeah. great if you're not great right. whatever well and what i was also thinking about um <laughs> earlier in the conversation is that uh, sex therapy takes these like really like sensationalized things and actually like makes them like way less sexy yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a that like, is really that's a great great way to say it so kind of like yeah and like yeah. i have no idea if you'll keep this in or not i <laughs> yeah jeremiah if you're not cool oh, with this you can tell that but like now. so <laughs> Well, so, and I only talked to a couple friends about this because I knew that if I talked to more friends about this, then I would get the like, oh my gosh, you did what? Um, but when we went to a sex club and I talked about it with like a couple like close friends, um, I knew I couldn't talk with it, talk with many people about it mm-hmm. because I'm like, listen, it's actually like not very sexy. <laughs> Um, like in the sense that like when you go to like lots of people go to a club and maybe you're like interested in dating people. I was never cool enough to go to a club. I never did. But I hear that people go to clubs and they dance and they like maybe have sex with people. Yeah, this is the first time I went to a club. Um, but, but, you know, there's kind of all this like, oh my gosh, is it going to happen or not going to happen? And like, you're whispering to people and then making eye contact across the room. And that's actually like way sexier. Yeah, that's if you the look fun at part. the definition of eroticism, yeah. eroticism mm-hmm. is like attraction plus obstacles. That's yeah. like way more erotic. Right. If you go to a sex club, like it's like not actually like all that sexy. Right. Or if you're like negotiating like other sexual partners, it's like, not actually all that sexy. And so like sexual health takes all these like stigmatized, like taboo things. And they're like, really not very like, I've had, I've had, um, 
conversations um, like where I've been invited into sexual friendships or been ex- mm-hmm. invited into sort of friends with benefits type scenarios. Right. And, and you're right. It is, it is a very unsexy thing. <laughs> right. Like it kind of, it's, you know, it just sort of seems like, oh, this is going to be like so <laughs> elevated. And, and then in the end, it's like, well, are you, would you like to be part of this? Well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Um, or, or, or maybe, but we'd have to make sure so-and-so is feeling, you know, feeling okay about that. And it, it is, like you say, it's more, uh, it's just more like a conversation. It's, it's much less elevated. It sounds more mechanical. Yeah. How are you going to divvy up the roles? How are you going to talk about yeah. who does what, when, where? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, say, but, I, I don't have a lot of experience with that, but I could just relate to mm-hmm. your experience. Well, I think there's kind of this yeah. mythology that's perpetuated. Uh, I mean, I would say from the right, because that's, you know, my background. Then I've heard these things that if you let go of some of these rigid constraints, then there's nothing left. Anything goes. Anything yeah, just, goes there, at any time. I have not in my mind that some listeners no more, would be going, yeah. clearly There are no more speak. values. And, and that's yeah. not what I hear you guys calling for. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I think that like, I, I want to get to a place with, with conversations around sexuality that I go, what feels good? What feels pleasurable? What is desirable for you? And if that means monogamy, sure, fine. Right. But it may not mean that for me. And so it's more of a conversation about being able to understand yourself, your sexuality yeah. and the relationships that you may be in and understanding that what feels good for you and what, you know, mm-hmm. makes sense within your value structure is fine. And mm-hmm. that, yeah. and so like, there is definitely room, I would imagine in your conversation that you could have someone who ticks off all of those boxes that the evangelical church would have, you know, perpetuated. And maybe they're, they're okay. Yeah. in like, uh, they, there can Absolutely. be sexual health yeah. in that. So it's not like you guys are saying, no, you must have sex before marriage. And no, you must not be monogamous. That's not what you're yeah. saying at all. Like you're saying, no, right. there are just ways that you can have sexual okay. health that are outside of these very rigid prescriptive frames. I mean, I would Absolutely. say that how things were like sold to me, like it was like there was like this guarantee. <laughs> it was like if you, yeah. if you don't have sex before you get married, if, well, you know, as a woman, you just don't masturbate. So that doesn't exist. Um, and right, then, right. you know, you have a monogamous relationship with your partner. It's all going to work out. And I mean- it doesn't in that way necessarily. I mean, I'm, I'm very yeah. fortunate with, with my partner that we can have actually good conversations about sex and sexuality. And in a lot of ways I say, I kind of lucked out marrying him. Cause I mean, I got married when I was 20. Like I, I followed all of the rules. They were like, I that's was, why it worked. That's <laughs> Well, no, you're still married. No, I am not advocating Podcast that. Done. No, I think no. we've come to the conclusion that the Sunday school class was right. But there, there is part where, I mean, I, I know several friends who did the exact same things and they, and they found out afterwards that, you know, the person that they married, you know, doesn't care about their pleasure, doesn't care about like those sorts of things that I'm like, oh, I was stupid enough that I didn't have some of those conversations and I just lucked out. That doesn't yeah. mean that yeah. like everything is okay, but I feel like there there is this like bill of goods that is sold within Ooh. the evangelical church yeah. that oh, yeah. clearly doesn't bear out. And I think there are ways that you can, you know, ascribe to a lot of those traditional things and you can have sexual health, but I think we we don't need to. <laughs> is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And 
uh, I think Ken, you had um, asked the question earlier around like grief and what mm. do you do with the grief aside from apparently you and I both spending thousands of dollars in therapy. Yeah. I had a great therapist in Boston. I've got a fantastic worth therapist. Ev- worth yeah. every penny. I just wish I could have sent the bill elsewhere, but worth yes. every penny. Mm. Uh, the church. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. To a lot of, <laughs> yeah. to a lot of people. The Southern yeah. Baptist um, and so in in sexual healing, we reclaim some of our um we reclaim our sexuality. And like you said, Ken, we can't we can't get back the lost time. Mm-hmm. The therapist I saw had used the language of a developmental loss. And as mm-hmm. I was reclaiming my sexuality and exploring other parts of my sexuality, you know, I, I did some of the very taboo things that the church told me was going to send me to hell. Mm-hmm. And I experienced healing in those things. Mm-hmm. I am not a better person though. And I think that's a really important yeah. distinction because they're on the other end of the spectrum. You know, there's this idea within the sex therapy world and we're both sex, ther- sex therapists. We spend a lot of time with them about like, you know, the more um, orgies, the better, okay. the more sexual yeah. partners, the better. The and, kinkier, the better. Right. And what I will say mm-hmm. is sexual, ex- um, sexual experience does not equal literacy. Yes. And, uh, I also don't have like, to go back to moral language, I am not now more evolved because I've had sex yeah, with more people or um, entered into queer spaces yeah. or been to sex clubs or BDSM or like whatever it is. If I've had healing, that doesn't make me better. And so that's something that I would want to add as well. Like well said, for those mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. like don't want to go to a sex club, like you don't have to reclaim you your sex. I do. That I appreciate like, that. You're, yeah. Like you don't have to do that. Yeah. Like you're, you're fine. I, I, I say like to some of these people who are in my life who say you should be having more sex. Like I say, I, I have, I have had the sex I want. Yes. Right. Like I, like I have, I have had sexual relationships that I want and I'm, I'm glad that I can say right now, I don't have this litany of experiences that I don't want. Yeah. Right. Right. Like I have, I have had experiences I did want and, and I learned things from them, but I, I, I do like what you're saying that it doesn't make you like a better or, more evolved person just based on sheer number of experiences. Right. Well, yeah. Right. Because the sex therapy world can moralize. It, yeah. I was just saying, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. you're doing the same thing. Three times, you're just better. Yeah. Because yeah. well, it's, it's going back to yeah. behavior based understandings of sex. It, it, yeah. Like, I really have been sort of edified by the quality of the experiences. Like, that's what I've kind of taken away from it. Oh, edify. What a great Good Bible word. I was a youth pastor. Did we mention mention that? (laughs) Yeah. And I just want to say you're really encouraging me right now. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for being an encourager. I'm I'm really lifting you up right now. Um, I like the language around want to. Before I got divorced um, and I was in therapy with said amazing therapist, I remember she asked me, um, well, what do you, what do you want? And I like had been a therapist for like multiple years and I was just was like, Lord, like I like had my like hands on the couch and I was like, wait, what? And I kept like talking about something else and she was like, wait, wait, hold on. The question I asked you was, what do you want? And it was this like thing that I was like 28 and I was like, nobody has ever effing asked me what I want. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of these, you you know, all of what we're talking about tonight, it's like, it's nuanced, it's complicated, it's gritty, it's grief filled, it's ecstasy filled. But like, ultimately it comes to like talking with yourself, with your partner, with your partners, Mm -hmm. like, what do you, what do you want? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you say that, and being able to, and being able to stick with that situation too. I'm remembering Julia, you and I had a sexual experience, and you asked me what I want, 
And I had a mini panic attack on it uh, because like nobody had, nobody had ever asked me that before. And so it was was very sad. And so being able to be present to not just figuring out what it is that I want, but also how is it that I figure out what I want Mm. and knowing that that's a, that that's a journey to get there as well. Yeah. And, and, and not a one-time journey, a, a daily journey. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, I can speak to masculinity as the man you were supposed to know, know. what you wanted. Yeah. So that's yeah. probably Oh yeah. Yeah, you failed that one. You. Not a godly man, yeah. Jeremiah. <laughs> I'll tell you what I want. Uh, the the um <laughs> as you guys speak about that question, you know, mm-hmm. what do you want? And we go back to the theological frame. Some of the some of the kind of sorrow I feel over that is the the assumption theologically that even being able to express what you want, and I'm not even just talking sexually now, just yeah. <laughs> in life, yeah. is a compromise of your Christian spirituality. Right. That there, like you, that is only to be distrusted. You are not a faithful Christian if you're talking about what you want. And there's no way that you can connect with Jesus in that. When my Christian spirituality, the concept of the presence of Jesus Christ, asking you that that there is there is actually christian spirituality in that it's positive to talk about what you want mm-hmm. it's to it is um it's not necessarily a self-centered selfishness that is that is kind of uh um counter to the spirituality that you bring right but that's such mm. a, a bridge cross in so many places and certainly sexually because of all of the kind of like terms like deviance and whatever else the kind of dark terms that we put upon things right that um uh, so I think it's like super, super helpful conversation. Do you guys have any other like burning questions to ask before we get to resources? <laughs> um, I, I've been curious about your experience with um, kind of the mental health cost that you've seen coming from these, these you know, conceptualizations of, of sex, sexuality, the self, and like the morality mm. and stuff that's, that's placed on them. Because in my, in my opinion, like these aren't, these aren't neutral things. There's been damage that's been done. And, and yeah. I, and I do wonder what sort of things you guys have seen, um, as, as some of, I mean, as some of like the outcomes from this, cause I can understand that when you, when you put yourself into like that dualistic mentality, that, that does something to your mental health and how mm-hmm. you kind of function. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to that professionally and personally. Mm. Uh, the the toll that my religious upbringing took on me, particularly in terms of my sexuality, was like devastating. Mm. And because I was being such a good Christian and following all the rules, uh, that that really crashed after I got married. And I've had some other difficult traumatic experiences along the way that have impacted it as well. Um, But what I've noticed, and this is like really dark, we're going to get very dark. Um, So when we think about trauma, we can think of like an acute trauma, um, like a violation or a violence that happens. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Right. And it could be sexual or not sexual. And then we can think about cumulative trauma and cumulative trauma is far more insidious because cumulative trauma is, I mean, essentially growing up for me and for many of my clients in an evangelical world in which day after day you get the messages Mm -hmm. that your body 
is dangerous and you're told to go back to change your shorts again and to pull up your shirt and um did you masturbate but don't masturbate um and don't get raped and don't get murdered because that's your fault right like all those things there isn't a beginning middle or an end um because even after you leave a community that purports dangerous messaging those messages are still with you. Um, So that would be an example of cumulative trauma. And when I think about my own experience in therapy, but when I also think about working with my clients, acute trauma like fucks you up. It's like a terrible thing, but it can, for many people, myself included, sadly be an easier thing to work through Mm -hmm. um, because because it's finite. And that's not to minimize um, the violence. It's just more clearly defined. Right. Um, And for me and for so many of my clients, that cumulative trauma, it's I I don't want to compare trauma and I won't, Mm -hmm. but it's a different kind of trauma and it's a different kind of pain that is far more that is far more difficult to conceptualize. And when it's harder to conceptualize, the healing is just we don't have the same kind of roadmap there. Yeah, Yeah. I'm um, I'm a master's student. I'm doing my, my master's of counseling psychology right now. And wanting to move right. into this kind of work. So this is a very interesting. Yeah, you guys have to talk after. Yeah, very yeah. interesting uh, thing for me to be involved He's with. He's taking notes for a paper. I'm taking notes for a paper. Thank you. I'll, <laughs> I'll be citing you. Um, Just make sure to cite us. Yeah, I'll Postman, cite you. And so, check out their podcast. Um, but um, what you were just, I just did a paper recently about conversion therapy. And, um, you know, Oof. how we have this idea about that process that's happening somewhere you know in some some church basement some camp somewhere and we can kind of compartmentalize it but the reality is that it's happening in these small ways all the time all the time right and so queer people are receiving those just like you said daily or on the regular these messages that they should be changing they should be someone else they shouldn't be who they are Hmm. and and it's that accumulation that is so burdensome over time um, right. Yeah, it's not just. It's not that there's just some. It's just ha- it happened on some weekend. I've never. I've never thought of it that way, Ken. I think that's yeah. such that, that's so insightful that and to bring from what Julia has said, mm-hmm. this idea that it's cumulative trauma. So like a CTSD type of you know as opposed to PTSD. Um, and so when I ha- have conversations about conversion therapy or whatever, when I hear I'm talking to people yeah. because of the work we do that, and I'll hear somebody say like no i was sent to this place or i went to this counselor and it turned out it was this i've always thought of it as like you know did you experience conversion therapy and mm-hmm. i've pictured those rooms mm-hmm. and a counselor yeah. and a, i love what you're saying that the answer it's to systemic. that question also yeah. includes i did because Every i was day. part of this culture forever yeah. that was yeah. sending these messages it's yeah. a really yeah. helpful way of seeing yeah. things in my case i quasi did both i sort of subjected myself to a christian and then counselor. you went to those rooms uh, yeah, I, I, I sought out a Christian counselor to fix me when I was like 19, 20-ish. Oh, I'm it thinking was, now, it sharing was this little quite, story. Quite awful. To disclosing we one have, thing yeah. you told me once that was you went to one of those things and, and you had an exercise given to you. Um, I hope I'm getting this kind of right. <laughs> that you were told um, and you were going to go back and see them the next week and you were given an exercise to to watch sports. Oh, yeah. Sports. Yeah, like that, it, was, it, was, it was classic. Like I, I was... Um, Oh, that once again, that's a whole other podcast, but, but, uh, yeah, I was given the, I was told to, you're too emotional. You're not manly enough, you know, um, watch sports, talk about sports, talk oh. about business and, no, and also play, you need to play a team sport. 
That's going to help. And, and then I joined a volleyball team with disastrous results, which is a pretty gay sport. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, it was pretty disastrous, that whole thing. And but, that was a more oh. classic conversion. And, and so, but that was my sort of, I always thought, oh, maybe I did go through conversion therapy because I went, I had I, that I experience. I determined that you have. Yeah, but, um, but I think that that as, as rotten as that was in retrospect and then there i was kind of led down the road to which is also a classic conversion therapy element from my understanding which is this is due to your shitty relationship with your parents uh, right right <laughs> and, and i was kind of led in that direction and there was supposed to be this like prayerful time where i was going to forgive them and i was like this is crap i'm not going yeah uh, and, and i stopped going to that so as, as as crummy as all of that was it was more the sustained over years, that was the messaging, yeah. you're not what you ought to be, that started from a very young age. I can, I can remember instances of that from my childhood in the church, that, oh, those are girls' toys. You don't, yeah. don't touch those. No, I think so, some, of those, some of those like norms that are presented to us, I mean, you could call it indoctrinization. I feel like yeah. that could be appropriate. Um, but you could even just call it like gender cultural norms. I mean, I know that, I mean, I, I, I have a, a little bit of a crush on Hannah Gatsby. She's lovely. Um, she and love her. Yes. She awesome. yeah. But she, she talks about in, in Nanette, um, that when but she's like, by the time that I came out of the closet, I was already homophobic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and, and you oh. can't, yeah. you can't just choose to not like when you grow up in a culture, she, she talks about Tasmania that she's like 70% of the people that, you know, raised me, that loved me, believed that homosexuality was a perversion, like that it was akin to pedophilia, that it was, and so she's like, that is the water I swam in. Like mm-hmm. you cannot not internalize that. And there are ways in which I would imagine that that pops up. I've experienced it in terms of image of, of my body, image of sexuality. Like I, I have some pretty kind of like ingrained memories of, you know, wearing the wrong thing to church and having somebody pull me aside and tell me to get changed. Um, I noticed when Julia I've, said that, talking about the shorts or something, and I, yeah, I, I know from that. previous episodes, yeah. Alice has had that experience. You're on a worship team or something, and somebody yep. came up and said, you need to go home and change. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've had it like at, at the school I was at that I wasn't allowed to wear a tank top, mm. that I wasn't. And so like you internalize these ways in which, you know, my shoulders were sexualized. And it's, there there are ways in which, and, and this kind of came up when we were doing the, the like parent info night for my for my kids sexual health course um that there were ways in which I those things still come up in ways for me that even like I don't believe that anymore Mm. like I want my kids to know this I want like this is you know information that they need and then checking the ways that I still like it's so deeply ingrained in like you repeat some parts of that script yeah yeah and and I'm normally able to check myself Mm -hmm. but it still like pops up I can't I can't like just factor that out of my brain because I don't believe it anymore. Like there's, there's long-term kind of ramifications. So I I think as we, you know, we could just talk to you guys for taking so much of your time and we'll, uh, but I wanted to, you know, Allison was pointing this out in our prep for this. And I think it's really good to be able to spend a few minutes talking about resources. Mm. I mean, I think in terms of resources, uh, clearly we would say to people like, go and listen to sex evangelicals. And again, many people will have to kind of let go of that, you know, is this acceptable or not acceptable <laughs> or like go and listen to, to some people talk about these things. You won't things go to hell stuff. for just listening to it. At well, least. I we can't can guarantee you that. that. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, uh, so tell us about beyond your podcast, like 
some resources for people who are just like this, this even listening to this might go, I want to start asking some questions about this, whether it's books or other things to listen to or throw some things out. Yeah, we've mentioned a few. Um, so uh, the sexual health principles that we talk about uh, are in Doug Braun Harvey's uh, Treating Out of Control Sexual Behavior. Um, I made reference to what's the other, oh, Peggy Klein-Platz's uh, Magnificent Sex. Uh, definitely read that. Uh, it's it's incredibly accessible. Um, it won it won the it won, it won the, some awards. It won some awards. <laughs> it, won the, it won the Star Award. Yeah. You're Canadian. the only person to whom that means anything. The Star Award does mean something. The Star Award is a big fucking deal. Okay, but uh, but but anyway. Um, um, trying to remember if there's other resources that I mentioned. I you already mentioned uh, Nadia Bolt Weber um, book Shameless. I like that one because that's a pretty accessible yeah. one yeah. for someone who might be in a religious context and wanting to positively integrate new sexual understandings or worldviews within a religious community. That book also gives you some space to move outside of religious communities. Uh, I like that one. Obviously, you did the interview with sure. Linda Klein. We did an interview with her too. So here is a fantastic here is a fantastic book, book as well. What about, In terms of oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, keep going, keep going, because I'm going to ask a different question that gets us off of like books and and stuff. Ask a different question. Okay. I could give a lot of. If you I want did. more books, I'll give you more books. But another okay. question is also great. So what about? Uh, there might be people listening who are like, I think I need to go and talk to someone. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, what, what do yes. people do in that case? You know, like, oh, I think I what are things that people and... should be looking for? Because, I mean, you Google like sex therapist. And yeah. like you said, there could be a spectrum. You could get, you know, the Christian counselor who says, you know, this is and they reinforce some stuff like. But if you don't know what you need yeah. to look for, like what are sure. some tips for people who maybe, you know, want to get some sex therapy to find a good, credible therapist? The Incarnation Institute of Sex and Faith is a group in Philadelphia. This is another book reference, actually. Beverly Dale uh, is the director of that program. She wrote um, Advancing, ugh, I, I would need to Google this later, Advancing Sexual Health for the Christian Client, I believe is the title of that. But, she, but she's in the process of developing a, a list of sexual health professionals uh, who specifically are, or, are, um, are versed in uh, some of the uh, conservative Christian uh, language and can help folks uh, kind of work through some of, the, some of the dogma. Now, would yeah. that be accessible um, for Canadian um, listeners as well? Because like, I, I, I don't know, like, some of the regulations around where people know. are, like, registered and stuff like that. Is there... Yeah, so, so one of the hard things about... And I don't know how Canada works in the U.S. Like, our licenses allow us to only work with folks who live in Massachusetts. Okay. Really? Um, so it's also it's also on a a, a state by state, province by province. Okay. So people may need basis. to do a little bit of homework. Yeah, and I can give you some ideas on how to do that homework to mm -hmm. get through the bullshit. Go you for go it. first. I, I was going to say uh, also uh, asect a a s e c t dot org. Um, that's the American Association for Sexuality Educator, Counselors, and Therapists. There are a lot of Canadians that are involved in asect. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, in Ontario, particularly, there's a, a good uh, basis of, of sex therapists, British Columbia, too, I believe. Um, so uh, those might be two good starting places. Right. Because ASECT has the location um, for Canada. Correct? correct. So if you go to this, will 
finding a good therapist is very overwhelming. So if you go to the ASECT website, um, you can click on the homepage. They have the find a therapist link. And then in the States, you put in your state and it will show you um, all the certified sex therapists by state. Um, for Canada, Canada, would it be um, via province? Prof- province yeah, yeah, province. Um, and the reason I'll suggest that with a like an asterisk, the reason I suggest that is because and. I hope this doesn't sound super egotistical, like becoming certified in sex therapy is like a really rigorous process, but there's no, um, what's the language for it? Like it's not a restricted, anyone can call themselves a sex therapist yeah, mm-hmm, in right. the United uh... States and I believe Canada. So you could like have a website that says like sex yeah. therapy with julia.org, but maybe I'm not a sex, like maybe I actually haven't done training. Yeah. So You'll find shitty therapists under like any like search engine. So I'm sure that there are some like bad therapists via ASECT, but at least ASECT will give you a list of certified therapists who have completed You've fairly rigorous training. Okay. So there's some yeah. like, kind of verification that they've gone through. Right. You and I basically have our at least PsyDs, if not PhDs, uh, due to the amount of work that, that mm-hmm. we've done postgraduate uh in order to get the certification in sex yeah and for folks from religious backgrounds hopefully a good therapist will offer you some sort of like brief phone consultation maybe 15 or 20 minutes and if you have concerns around religion ask them Mm -hmm. what experience do you have working with religious folks and if you don't can you help me find someone who has that experience uh because i i um had some really good luck when I moved to Boston. My ex-husband and I did have a great sex therapist. She was um, didn't have a background in religious um, understanding, um, but she was really, really good and understood the systems of it really well. Um, so I would say, like, you can ask, you know, your therapist, hopefully any question that they want, and they'll either answer or, or not answer. But um, that's probably like an expensive um commitment in terms of your time your resources either on your own or with a partner or partners and so you like you deserve to find someone who's a good match and so if you've got concerns about whether or not they can understand that background just ask them yeah this sounds so much more fulsome than um you know Set up a meeting with Pastor Steve and yeah. maybe, and maybe yeah, <laughs> Pastor Steve's <laughs> wife or something. That, uh, that is one area yeah. where I will say don't <laughs> yeah, very, okay. very strongly. Uh, well, thank you so much, yeah, you guys, you. for your time. We're going to keep listening and and the engaging ways in which you speak, the uh, the kind of ways that you... Oh, uh, we got have one, one more, more question. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. You finish, then I'll say goodbye. Finish up your compliment. No, I'm going to compliment and oh, re-compliment. Okay. I'll, I'll re-compliment. We'll do lots okay. of compliments. Um, I'd love if we could uh, end with kind of our typical question. Thank you. Sorry. At this point, like, what gives you hope right now? And that, Ooh, it doesn't I mean, have to be related to your work. It could it be like have you have a It doesn't have to be sexual hope. <laughs> we don't make it thematic. <laughs> Next month, you and I will be in Scotland hiking for a week. Um, That's nice. What That's gives nice. me hope is... I think that there are, what gives me hope is that there are more and more people talking about the negative experiences uh, within the church, either explicitly within, explicitly within the church or connected to the abstinence-only education systems that the church, that the evangelical church largely fueled. Um, I think that 
more and more people are are asking questions, more and more people are talking about their experiences, talking about their grief. I I, I think that that's mm-hmm. I think that's something that gives me hope. There's there's much less isolation around this today mm-hmm. than there was five years ago, ten years ago. This is going to sound very cliche, but I would say a conversation like this is very hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take that. Seriously. Yeah. And and this is coming Trusted. on a day of yeah. like, this is like not a hopeful day for mm-hmm. me, just in full disclosure. My hope mm-hmm. level on a scale from zero to 10 is like maybe like a three today. 3.4. That's high. I'm feeling terrible. Um, No, but having conversations with folks who have similar values, who are doing maybe like collateral work, like you're doing work that we're not doing and there's things that we're doing that you're not doing, but there's a sense of like to use some biblical language, like that cloud of witnesses. (laughs) And let's reclaim that image. I think think we have an episode name. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were talking earlier about like being broken into pieces and I don't, I don't read my Bible any longer, primarily for the reason that I don't have any training. And so it doesn't seem responsible for me to read a Bible any longer. Uh, But there is a verse that I still love and I don't, I can't give you the reference any longer, but there's, but there is a verse that talks about like, God bringing together all the pieces of you that were meant to be whole. Mm. And so that there is still like a hope within me that there are people and some force of goodness in this world that like wants to like gather up those pieces. So well said. Mm-hmm. That is, And it, so now I'll go back to re-compliment. <laughs> and so I know we feel the same way yes. and hope from, from being able to have these conversations with people like you and the work that you're doing, we can each think of our own lives and other people that we know. And of course I can kind of tear up when I think of, you know, like mention it briefly, mm-hmm. my friendship with Ken and the, but you can just think through so many people through the years, right. Who you're like this hope uh, towards this wholeness that is, that is different than some of those, the ways that wholeness might've been described to us, but that it is happening. And so thank you for your work. Uh, we'll continue to follow it. We hope that you make it to Vancouver one day and we'll take you on a hike Yay! around here. Have you done the grouse grind ever? Have you done yeah. the grouse grind? Do you know Vancouver? No. Okay. I've so never oh, been to the That's where you're going to take yeah. it. It's yeah. no. like a staircase. Yeah. Well, they're real hikers. It's like climbing a mountain and it's like, um, yeah. I love hiking. And an awesome view at the top. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. come to Vancouver. We will bring you out on a hike and, and, uh, you know, we'll have you teach somewhere or something. And, but thank you so much for your time. And we know that it's, it's evening where <laughs> yeah. you are. Um, so, so best for a great night. <laughs> thank Thanks. you guys. Thank so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Thank you.